Uh, we now turn to our text today as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we now turn to Gospel, uh, we, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 14 through 29. And as you've been uh, tracking along with us, last week what we witnessed is Jesus' transfiguration. And that literally means change. That before three of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, Jesus transfigured. He uh, transformed his form into glory. And really the reason why he was doing this is that he was encouraging his disciples that despite all the trials that come with discipleship, at the end of the day, this is what you will become. Glorified, resurrected beings. It was a way to encourage his disciples to continue to carry on. And this is that high mountaintop experiences, experience that perhaps maybe some of us might have. We have this undeniable connection with God that we cannot doubt him, that he is with us and it, and it just invigorates us. And yet reality also is we also got to come down that mountain, deal with reality paying off taxes, child-rearing, dealing with difficult co-workers. Where does God fit into that? And I believe today's passage really shows us this. How do we, how do we navigate through life in the nitty-gritty details of it? And so if you have your Bibles with you, uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 14 through 29. And if you're able, can you please stand and rise with me for the reading of God's word? These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Let's give them our full attention today. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, that's Jesus asking them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he, he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and it becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it often has cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that the most, uh, most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, 
why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Thus goes your reading of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall, uh, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. And would you join your hearts with mine in a word of prayer? Jesus, as we come before you, teach us what it means to pray. This world desperately needs prayer. Our lives must be drenched in prayer. Prayer is the only answer to a fallen world full of broken people. Not just an abstraction, but our daily struggle as we navigate through it. And so would you meet us as we prayerfully take in your words this morning? We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the thing is, if you knew the ending to your life, right, you knew everything, uh, regardless of what happens in between all that, you, you understand everything that happens at the end of your life naturally, you would think you should be at ease. You should be have this sense of calmness to your life. I know how it's all going to end up, right? This is exactly what Jesus is showing us. In the transfiguration, it's the ending to our lives that should put our souls at ease. I mean, think about it. When you watch like a scary horror movie and you've already pre-seen what happens, all the scary pop-out things that happen, you, you, and you watch it with your friends, you're not as scared because you know exactly the timing when these things will happen and when these things will occur. It's okay. You can kind of relax and just enjoy the movie. And yet the irony of all this is that even though we understand the ending to our lives of a glorious future of a resurrected body, we're not at ease. We're still anxious. We still worry. We still carry our doubts. See, the thing is, if hope is our ability to look into the future, then faith is the ability to hang on. But let me ask you, how strong is your grip? How strong is your grip? to hold on to the promises of God. And that's the thing. Faith is so tricky. At one, moment, at one moment, you, you, you can't, it's undeniable. You cannot doubt the presence of God with you. And at a moment's, at a moment's time, you just, you just forget everything you know. And yet faith is our ability to hang on. How strong is your grip here? See, what this passage really shows us is in the reality of everything that can make you doubt everything that you believe in about God, there's a way to hang on. There's a way that God still shapes our faith and everything that we can doubt. So here's three things to consider today. One is the condition of our lives, the condition of our souls. Second is the confusion when we come to grips with the reality of a broken world, the confusion that that brings. And third, last of all, where do we get the conviction? Let's get the first part, condition. So this transfiguration is a high mountaintop experience where the disciples 
undeniably see the Messiah in all his glory of who he truly is, not a doubt in their minds, but life at the bottom of this side of glory is full of struggle and strife. That's why the Apostle Paul here in Romans 8.20 says this. He says, creation has been subjected to fertility, meaning it's frustrated in sin, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will uh, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The Apostle Paul is basically just saying the world is incomplete and the more you try to find completion, completeness apart from God, the more the frustration you will feel. Look, you can long for security and you can buy a home and you might be set, but it doesn't take away termites, doesn't take away the plumbing issues. You might try all that you want that to fix a loneliness problem. You think marriage is the answer and only to get married and you realize your spouse really doesn't understand you. You can do all you want in raising your kids the right way, do all this gentle parenting, uh, uh, instruct them, spend as much time with them as possible. But one TikTok influencer and their whole worldview changes. You can do what you want. But down this side of the mountain, the true condition of all of creation is frustration. And down this mountain, Jesus and his disciples, they find the other disciples in an argument with the other scribes. No one really knows why. No one really understands why they're arguing. So Jesus just says point blank, why are you arguing with them? No response which probably means it's one of those arguments they forgot what, they are, or what they're arguing about to begin with, right? So it must have been so petty and so embarrassing to even say out loud. But then the father, uh, but the father breaks the silence. He tells them what's going on. Guys, one thing I want us to consider as a church and just make it our aim and prioritize is that we would prioritize counseling the hurting, walking with the hurting and and grieving than arguing with the agenda-driven. That this would be the aim of new life. That we're less about arguing and more about walking with those who are hurting. And if you're hurting, I hope you do what the Father does here in verse 17. He opens up, tells, the, tells Jesus about the condition. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. The spirit throws him down into fire, into water, trying to destroy him. And in verse 25, Jesus labels this as an unclean spirit. And remember, this whole phrase is closely connected with idol worship and magic sorcery. So you don't just randomly become demon-possessed. You have to avidly seek this out, actually. And the effect of idolatry here is, it's dehumanizing. And the father says, from all his childhood, he's been like this, mute and deaf. I just want you to imagine this. Like as the child is being tormented by his demon possession, he can't hear the soothing words of his own parents to say, hey, hey, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. 
He can't verbalize the agony that he feels. He just deals with this. Such an isolating place to be. Can't receive any comfort of any kind. Idolatry always tries to convince you that you're okay, you don't need to open up, you don't need to tell anyone about your problems. After all, as long as you, you, you've got it put together, that's all, you, that's all anyone else needs to know. Just stay quiet. Just stay quiet. There's this uh, pastor named Sinclair Ferguson. He, he once said this about what Satan's counsel to, to us is like uh, when he tempts us into sin. And he simply says this, Satan likes to whisper, shh, let's just keep this between us. It'll be our little secret. No one else has to know. Let's keep it between us. That's what idolatry is. It fails to openly confess the conditions of our hearts. The only way to keep us from this actually happening to us is to openly confess what is the true condition of your hearts. I used to know this girl. Um, she was this very bubbly girl who was part of our, our church, and she smiled a lot and was well-loved by everyone at church. She participated in, in all the church gatherings. She volunteered a lot, and so no one batted an eye. She was an outstanding church member, at least in the eyes of everyone else that saw her life. I distinctly remember going on vacation only to get a phone call saying, you've got to come to the hospital. So I went. And at the hospital, there she was. She was unconscious. She tried to take her own life. And that's when she opens up, or that's when I found out about her family troubles. How her dad didn't want her in her life, in his life. And it all just piled up. She never told anyone. I can't forget this. Because when I look at you, I don't assume that everything is great. I know that everyone that comes here, there's something we all wrestle with. There's something that we all struggle with. And sometimes we just got to be open about some of those things. Whether it's a sin issue, whether it's a trial, doesn't matter. You got to open up. Because the world, the creation, it's frustrated. It's frustrated in its sin. Even Jesus confesses, confesses the condition of his own heart. You, you look at verse 19. He says, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And you, when you read these words, you, you think, man, that's, that's just kind of harsh. It's kind of like going to the emergency room to see the doctor, and the doctor is like not really compassionate. Just tell me your problems, take some meds, go. But why is Jesus speaking this way? Jesus' words aren't one of annoyance, but rather one of lament. He's lamenting over the disbelieving hearts of his own disciples. Jesus without sin is open about his own weariness. See, life down the mountain, it's frustrated, 
but it's also confusing. Second point here, what's the confusion? See, in this father's mind, he automatically thought, if I just bring my my demon-possessed son to these disciples, they should be able to know what to do with it. Because after all, you look back in Mark chapter 6, verse 13 up here, it says that the disciples cast out many demons. Not just some, not just a few, many demons. And so this is a no-brainer for the father. He's got all this hope. My boy can get better. I just got to bring him to the disciples. This ought to work, but it doesn't. And yet here is the main problem that we all have with God. He does not operate the way we think he should. And this upsets everyone. Even the disciples, they're confused. See, in private, they asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast out this demon? I mean, we've, we've done it tons of times. We've done, we've done the exact same formula. We prayed, maybe read a little scripture, and the demon is cast out. Why, Jesus, can we not do this here? And Jesus tells him, verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Prayer. If you analyze this text very briefly here, when you read of Jesus actually healing this boy, you'll notice what Jesus does not do here. He does not pray. Like, Jesus himself did not pray for the healing of this boy. So why on earth is Jesus telling the disciples, you need to pray, you lack prayer? There's only one person that was praying in all this. The father, the father of the child prays. The one whose plan didn't work out, the one who should be devastated to even want to pray at all, the one who should have no trust in this Jesus, the one who is heartbroken, prays to Jesus. Because look at what he says, verse 22. If you can, if you can do anything, have compassion on us, and help us. He's the only one who fully leans upon Jesus. This is what Jesus is getting at. Our life is meant to be one of prayer, to fully lean upon Jesus. I remember my friend was sharing with me how He has all these character deficiencies and patterns of sin in his life that he wrestles with. And um, he's been so frustrated because he tries so hard to break out of these addictive cycles. And um, he gets so discouraged. And he finally asked me, you know, if, if our purpose in life is to glorify God, right? That's right, right? And I say, yeah, that's correct. Well, if God wants all the glory, then wouldn't it make sense, most sense for him to glorify me now, just make me perfect without struggling with sin, just take away all my deficiencies? Doesn't he want the glory? He made sense. And I could tell that he definitely believes in God. My heart aches for him. But how do you know that the struggle isn't part of of God's glory as well. That if all of us could truly be perfect now with our glorified selves, our glorified bodies, 
will we truly seek for God and depend on him at all? Does God not display his own glory in using his powers and his strength to restore us, to redeem us, and to give us more faith when we doubt? Growing in faith is not about needing God less, but becoming more and more needy before God. That is what faith is. Prayer is not meant to improve our lives. Prayer is our lives. A lifelong dependence on God. See, Jesus responds to the Father's plea with this in verse 23. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Like, what does, what does Jesus mean by this? What does this verse actually mean? Because it sounds an awful lot like Philippians 4.13 up here, uh, this, this tattoo-worthy verse that everyone uh, wears, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That supposedly, if you just have enough faith and you have enough willpower, you can conquer whatever obstacles that exist in your life. You can do all things. Just remember to have faith. Well, that's funny because the God who can do all things kept Moses from entering the promised land, allowed John the Baptist to be beheaded, allowed Stephen, one of the apostles, to be stoned to death, and Paul and the other disciples to constantly be imprisoned. The God who can do all things also includes failure and death. All things is really a question of faith here. Do you believe God is able to use anything and everything in your life for the good of your salvation? That's what all things is about here. Do you believe he is able to work good of your salvation no matter what happens? That's the question. That's the struggle. I like to think about it this. I got this piece of rope. You probably can't see. It's kind of small. But I want you to imagine this rope represents your whole life. I got inspired by another pastor for, for this. And let's just say in your 20s, this is how much you know of God. In your 30s, this is how much you know of God. In your 40s, this is how much you know of God. And, you know, so on. But let's just say, you know, you live all the way to 80 and this is how much you know. But the thing is, you don't see the other Sorry, this rope is just t terrible, but like, there's a whole spool. Just imagine a whole sp spool of rope. Like you're basing everything about your understanding of God in this tiny section when there's a whole eternity that God spans, has in play here. And that's the thing. We ask God for more rope, help me to understand, more rope to help me to understand. But the real thing is, the more and more you let go of trying to know more and understand more, and until you're at the very end of your rope, that's where God meets you. Because at the end of your rope, you have to be convicted of who God truly is, to trust him, regardless of whether you understand everything or not. Because when you're too busy holding on to God, the other options don't matter as much. Here's what conviction ultimately looks like. Last point here. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
Help my unbelief. I love this response. It's such a real, uh, it's such a real display of what faith looks like. I believe, but help my unbelief. See, there's this idea of the circle of knowledge here. Pull up this circle, that this concept of the inner circle, that everything inside this circle is everything you know about God. Your inner circle is about your knowledge of God, how life works out. And the more you grow in this knowledge, the more the circle grows. But everything outside the circle that the, uh, that the outer circle touches is everything you don't know. So the more you understand God, the more you have faith in him, the more doubts that come. That's the circle of knowledge for you. And the thing is, faith is not the absence of doubt, but believing in light of our doubts. God doesn't need our faith to be God, yet he gives us faith to know him. Not fully, but truly. Believing in God doesn't mean you understand everything, but to still trust him despite what you cannot know. I believe but help my unbelief. It's what we say after a cancer diagnosis. It's the proper expression to say when someone dies. It's what we say as bombs are exploding over the Gaza Strip. My, uh, my kid from this week, he was playing with his neighborhood friends and he comes in the door and he looks a little bit exasperated, you know, like dirt on his face. And he tells me, the other kids are fighting and one kid slapped me on the back. I said, what? Hold on. What? Who did what? He tells me he was trying to break up the fight and one of the kids just got mad and like slapped him on the back and like, I didn't know what to do. Usually I'd consult with my better half, but she wasn't there at that time. So I just, you know, just naturally, I just walked out. I, I saw the kid who did it. I said, hey, I try to say this gently, but it probably didn't come out gentle. I said, hey, did, what happened? He said, uh, and he's trying to lie about it. I said, don't lie to me. Tell me what happened. He's like, yes, I slapped him on the back. And then I, I, tried to con- I went back in the house to consult Miles, the full story. I got it. I came back out. I tell them, hey, don't do that. Keep your hands to yourself. It was probably not the most effective thing. I should have been, I should have talked to his parents, but I, I, just, I was just too heated at that time. But the thing is, I thought about like, you know, like I want to do what I can just to protect him or at least defend him when he doesn't have anyone defending him. And that's when I realized the thing about children is that they're, they're kind of helpless. You, you kind of have to do stuff like that for him. I don't know if my parenting strategy was good or not, but that's my natural desire, my natural reaction. So all I was thinking is, where is this in Gaza? You know, like, where is this for the Israeli babies? We can, we can like, argue about well, who's been oppressed more, this and that, and, you know, there's this whole riff in America, it just seems like, and, and you know, you just witness all this atrocity happening there, and we kind of just still move on with our lives, but it, it, it's got to make you think, though. Where is God with these kids? Where is God in this? I pray for peace. I pray for aid. I know that God is sovereign. And even so, the heart of everything I say and the way that I pray is still, I believe. But how my unbelief? 
Jesus rebukes the evil here. He commands the demon to leave, never enter this boy again. The demon does that, obeys, successful healing, until verse 26. The boy became like a corpse, so that most of the people said, He is dead. He's dead. Death is final. There's no do-overs for death. There's no maybe next time. And yet, every day we deal with death because there are variations of what death is. A relationship that doesn't work out, a missed opportunities, your plans just not unraveling or going according to plan, the goodbyes that we say, they're all many forms of death. Final. It's over. There's no redos in this. And yet here is the signal of the ending. Death. But a resurrection means it's never over. No matter how many deaths you can go through. Look at what Jesus does. He reaches his hands into death itself. He holds on to the child and raises him up back to life. That when you are about to lose all faith in who God is, there is a God who is faithful enough to say, I will be with you. That when your grip on God and his promises are loosening, here is a God who says, I have a tighter grip on you. The thing is, the hands of God's wrath was placed upon Jesus, his only son. And the only way that Jesus could secure a tight grip on our hearts is only if those hands were nailed to the cross. And as his hands are being nailed to the cross, the wrathful hands of God for for the sins of the world came down full fury at the cross. Also that the hands of mercy will minister to your hearts will grab a hold on to you to say, I can never let you go because you are my child. He is too faithful. He is more faithful than you are doubtful that Jesus himself will lean into death to bring you out. The hands of death hit Jesus so that you would not feel the full force. And friends, if you know that he will hold on to you like a little child and bring you up. It gives you just enough faith for the next day, and then the next, and then the next. You might lose faith, but he can never lose faith for you, his faith for you. Friends, join me in a word of prayer. God, you know, there's moments where we do doubt. But then most of the times, it's just like numbed faith. Where with our minds, we know. But like our hearts say something completely different. And sometimes our actions too. We are helpless. Like this father and child. 
and yet you are the protector of the helpless. As we learn what it means to pray, not just verbally, but what our lives are supposed to look like in prayer, wholehearted dependence that collapses on the shoulder of Jesus, and yet Jesus, you're strong enough to carry all of us. You're the only one who could truly look us straight in the face and simply say, it's gonna be okay, I promise. Lord, so because of that, no matter what variations of death we might go through, may we look up to you, knowing that you raise us from the dead. That is what gives us hope, and that is what strengthens our faith. Thank you, you're this kind of God whose hold on us is too tight, that not even death itself can separate us from the love of God. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.